Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Dr. David Smith and host Steve Heilig. David Smith is co-founder of the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic in San Francisco. Welcome, everybody. This is part of a now 10-year series at the New School of Talks on a very wide range of topics. If you go to the uh, New School website at Commonweal, uh, you can find most of them archived with podcasts, and some of them are video as well. Recent ones and ones that uh, are perhaps relevant and recommended was the last one I did just last month with Don Latin, who was the uh, Chronicle spirituality and religion writer for many years, and it was Psychedelic Sacraments and the New Psychotherapy. We had Michael Pollan a couple years ago called The Trip Treatment, New Research and Healing Properties of Psychedelics. Peter Coyote, Rainman's Third Cure, His Whole Life Story. And uh, the favorite that we always put on here, or one of the favorites for entertainment value, at least, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Ramblin' On. <laughs> Upstairs, playing music as well. It was a lot of fun. So I'm really going to enjoy this one, too, because uh, we have um, somebody who's not only an amazing person to have here, but a uh, dear old friend and mentor for over 30 years now. So I thought it was really appropriate to get him here at the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love and 50th anniversary of the founding of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. Um, his work, I think it's safe to say, the work he's done over his career, if you count in the ripple effect, has benefited millions of people, and that's no exaggeration, and we'll hear something about that. So please welcome Dr. David Smith. We're gonna start at really, truly the beginning. Um, your grandparents were basically Okies. Correct. That came to California in kind of the full Grapes of Wrath experience, maybe, coming that's, here. That's true. To Bakersfield, right? And that's where you were born. His parents were, were there. And so you were, at that age, do you remember any particular uh, yearnings or uh, plans to what you were going to do with your life and as a uh, Bakersfield boy? The only thing I remember is I wanted to get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> but for those of you that are my generation, I don't see very many of you. This was the, the Dust Bowl. Um, it was a different era. It's been well written up, but uh, uh, people from Oklahoma came to the Central Valley, uh, worked in the fields, and they had signs that Okies go away. It was kind of like hippies go away. It was an incredible discrimination. There was a great book by Jerry Haslam that shows the tremendous discrimination against the uh, 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 the quote Okies in the 30s and that's and in part of my story because if you've ever felt discrimination even though you don't manifest it it stays with you and that was a factor when we started the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinics the what happened was my grandmother was the center of the family. In those days, it was the women that were the stable part of the family. The uh, men, oftentimes unemployed, alcoholic, bitter about what had happened to them, lost their jobs, lost their homes. So she went out in the fields with her, my three, uh, her three daughters, and they worked 
in the fields, and the boss came up and said, what will you do? And my grandmother said, I'll do, we'll do anything. So my mother said, David, never say you do anything. Say you're something. So that was a very powerful force for me. I wanted to be something. And it, it, in that uh, time period and reflecting on it, what happened was uh, my grandmother got a promotion. She was in the packing shed. And she saved some money and she bought a house in Lindsay, which is right outside of Bakersfield, for $1,500. My grandfather said, why are you doing that? we got to keep moving. She said, no, I want a house. And so what happened it was called the Great Oklahoma Migration, <coughs> well written about. They, uh, all the uh, families would come out, and they would stay at my grandmother's house. Mm -hmm. So the way I was raised, it was this big migration. And, and it was... Uh, Uncle Dirty and Aunt Dusty, and Uncle Dirty got drunk and he shot birds off the back fence, and my grandmother would yell at him. I remember, Dirty, stop that. So there was a lot of drinking. Alcoholism is part of my family history. And so that's, that are the things I, I, I take away. I had relatives that lived in tents when they would come out and have a place to stay. So they would live in tents. Uh, Uncle Jigs. And so uh, that's very much part of not only California history, but also part of my history. And when you, ref when I reflect, because I've been interviewed a lot on this 50th anniversary of the Haight Ashbury Clinic, how I ended up doing what I'm doing now from where I started, it's almost incomprehensible. And so in reflecting on it, that discrimination and seeing how people were treated, even though I did everything I could to be away from it. And again, if you're not from that period, the shame that the, these families from the Depression had, um, being called an oki, that was the equivalent of the N-word in the African-American community. Now, everybody talks about it now, but it was a, 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 a term of, der, of der, derangement. And I remember I went to UC Berkeley. I was a very hardworking student. Um, and I went to UC Berkeley. Remember, that's the era of education in California. You know, if you were a hardworking student from California, you automatically got to the next stage. My mother died in 1956, so, and I, my dad died soon after, so I basically grew up an orphan. And, but when I was at UC Berkeley, my dad sent me $80 a month. I paid for tuition, room, and board. Think about education now. $80 a month got me through every month at UC Berkeley. And I, they had this book uh, called uh, Grapes of Wrath. They call it one of the greatest books ever written. So I said, Grandmother, I just read, this is our family history, and it's called a great book. She says, we don't like it because they made fun of us. So that's, that's really what stuck with me. Well, when you were still in Bakersfield, uh, so 
Well, here, here's, here's from, from this book that one of Dave's uh, high school friends wrote years ago um, called Dr. Dave, the first known picture of Dave. Maybe we can put it right in the camera. There. If you can pass this around, there's, there's Dave. Um, and what he writes in here, by the time in high school, you were a clown and a screw-up and restless and disruptive and your teachers remarking that you were a big problem. Um, was this part of that, do you think? Were you were just uh, uncomfortable yes. with your... Yeah, I was... Uh, my mother had been sick. I was had a kidney disease. I didn't fit in. And then I recall my sophomore year in high school, they had a math test. And I got the best grade in the class. And I beat the guy that was the brain. Remember when you were there, there was always the smartest guy? <laughs> the brain. And I beat the brain. And they, some of the fellows said, well, you must have cheated. And then I go, I'm smart. And I can have status by being a good student. I also wanted to be an athlete, but I wasn't. I was on the high school basketball team, but I, I didn't go that far. But I was turned out I was really smart and a really good student. Mm -hmm. And uh, what my mother carried with me, they, they, they'd say, uh, "Mother holds your heart for a short. Mother holds your hand for a short time, but your heart forever." And my mother, she died in '56, and she still lives with me every day. So my inspiration to be something and to go on into medicine came from my mother. And so you talk about, well, it's very interesting because a couple years ago you got that big award from Berkeley um, for all your contributions in health and so forth, but the talk you chose to give was about the value, the era of basically free public education and getting right. there. So you get to Berkeley, and there you are, this is late 50s, you also felt like an outsider, oh, yeah. really. I mean, you really kind of struggled, and at that time, was the beginning of the civil rights, free speech movements, and all of that. So it must have been quite a jarring change from Bakersfield. Oh yeah, it was a jarring change. Uh, I don't. Again, I don't know how many are from my era, but in Bakersfield, if you didn't have a car, you were nothing. No girl would go out with you. So I worked overtime in the fields, picking plums, picking onions. Hardest work I ever did in my life, 75 cents an hour, so I could save enough money to buy a car. And I bought this car. I, um, I was just down in Bakersfield. We gave a scholarship to stu uh, nursing students with our farm worker background from our Smith Family Foundation. And I saw this really cool guy that played one year ahead of me on the basketball team. And he had this maroon Chevy and an attractive blonde. <laughs> that's what I wanted. So I saved my money, I bought the car, the blonde didn't come with it. Uh, my friend says, well, that she would have been extra. And um, uh, she was at our reunion, so we laughed about it. So here I am, finally have some status in Bakersfield. Got a 48 Chevy, maroon, moon hubcaps, chrome pipes. And remember, I lived two blocks from high school. <laughs> and yet every day I would shine my pipes and drive to school. <laughs> That's what you did in Bakersfield. So I arrive in Berkeley and I'm going down University Avenue and my 48 maroon Chevy with red leatherette, I look around, nobody has a car like that. 
In other words, it was like I had gone from, you know, Mars to Venus. So again, um, culture conflict. If you've never been in the Central Valley and compared the Central Valley to the Bay Area, you don't know what a culture conflict it is. And it still exists very much, but it was very much of a, a jarring experience for me. So I think that the theme is I felt like an outsider most of my life. And how did you do at Berkeley? You worked very hard, obviously, because you got into medical school, but yeah. you joined a fraternity and focused on you know, your studies. When did you feel that you decided that you wanted to go into, into medicine? Well, no, I wanted all along, and I was a hardworking student, but I also, the, there was a fraternity, and I never heard of fraternities, and they had beer in the basement, and they had parties, so I thought, beer and girls, boy, that's a good thing. Well, I didn't know they had all this bullshit, other stuff, you know? and uh, so I went there to get drunk and get laid, and I ended up having to do these rituals and this nonsense. So I didn't fit there either, although I really liked, uh, I, I, I was a, became a binge alcoholic at that time. In other words, I was involved in sports and um, uh, school, very hardworking, but then when I drank, I would drink alcoholically. I would black out. I'd screw up relationships, do really stupid things. And um, so I did very well in school in Berkeley. And um, it, it was also interesting that I went through the community college, which is a great thing for me because I wasn't culturally ready to go to a four-year school. And it was all the, the top students from Bakersfield College, the sons of the professors that went there, and they would have these crucial courses, uh, organic chemistry and calculus and all the things, and I got 4.0. Turned out I was a really good student. I was a hard-working student. It didn't come easy. And uh, so I tried to have a social life. I was a much better student than I was an alcoholic. You know? <laughs> but I made it through in spite of that because I kept this weekend party life and the fraternities completely away from my studies. How about the cultural foment that was starting then with free speech and all that kind of stuff starting up? Were you aware of that? Did that oh, it was all you? over. Yeah. It was all over. Did it, was it attract you at all? Were you, were no, you I don't want to have anything to do with it. I was, uh, <laughs> uh, that was Berkeley at that time. And if uh, some of you went to Berkeley at that time, it was just in the air. I remember um, uh, I was a zoology major because I was always interested in science and animals and going out here like the equivalent of Bellinus and looking at the you know, the sea life and everything and doing experiments. This is the beginnings of uh, ecology and then you had this rat experiment. and uh, So I was doing this rat experiment and the TA said, they have the House on American activities. And I said, so I've got to get to finish this experiment so I get an A in the class. And he says, you won't get an A in the class if you don't go. <laughs> In other words, I think this is what Ronald Reagan was so upset about. <laughs> In other words, if you were there at that time, 
you were indoctrinated into a liberal political ethic whether you wanted to or not. <laughs> so it was in the air and, and reluctantly I incorporated some of the philosophy because you'd sit around and you'd talk about it and hear all these bright philosophy majors and I was just interested in science, but you'd sit around the coffee shops and talk about existentialism and all these interesting people, and you know it was it was a fascinating time. But I cannot in any way say that I um, incorporated as an activist. I, I almost think in reflecting on it is what you had to do to you know to get along. You know, if you weren't against the House on American Activities. That was like not having a car in Bakersfield. You know? <laughs> so you get into medical school and you move across the bay to San Francisco, UCSF. This is still early 60s. Right. Um, then that was very challenging, too. I mean, it always is, but always is. you were a great student, but still you were immersed then in medical school. Right. And... At that point, it was happening a bit in San Francisco, too. It wasn't quite the, uh, the hippie thing yet. The UCSF, for anybody who doesn't know, is right there in the hate, basically, or right above it. But you were living there in that neighborhood and uh, just going through school. I mean, did, was this anything unusual happening then, or were you just planning to get through school and become a doctor and have a well, great we're career? We're neighbors. I, for those of you that don't know, Steve and I are neighbors, and we spend a lot of time together. He comes by our house. We go and hang out in coffee shops in the hate and just talk all the time. This is just an extension of our neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you that don't know the, the hate Ashbury, um, I... I what, I lived at six thirty one Frederick across from Old Kizar. I'm trying to see if you there's the 49ers, watch it from the roof. There's Poly High School, and H Street is just a short way up. It's a very small area, and my parents had died, and I inherited some money, and I didn't have a home. And what would happen is, you know, I'd be at school and everybody would have go home for Christmas, Thanksgiving. I didn't have any place to go home to because I was really alienated for other complex reasons from certain portions of my family. Uh, and that that came about when my, this is a, a very painful part. But, um, uh, my dad died in 1960 after uh, marrying a, my stepmother, and she hated me, and I hated her. And my dad said, no, he's a scholar-athlete, and then she said, no, he's a drunken womanizer. And there's a little bit of truth in both of it. And I was a, I was a teenager, and I didn't understand death, and I didn't understand any of this stuff. So I inherited some money, and I bought an apartment building at 631 Frederick. That's, that was my home. And so I lived and owned a house or an apartment building in the Haight-Ashbury before it was the Haight-Ashbury. <laughs> when I was in medical school, there were some outstanding professors. And I'm sure you were the same way, Steve. There's certain professors that turn you on to certain subjects. And that was the beginnings of psychopharmacology, the study of the effects of drugs on the mind. UCSF and 
pharmacology and psychiatry was the leader in that area. So it's absolutely fascinating. So when I was in medical school, I also enrolled in graduate school and I got a Master of Science in uh, Pharmacology. And uh, the, I, I, I was studying the effects of psychedelic drugs and amphetamine and because I became the local drug expert in my training at UCSF in San Francisco General, I ran the alcohol and drug abuse screening unit. And that's how I really evolved into the addiction area. But in no way was this going to be a, uh, a career path. I went on the clinical faculty at UCSF. I was still wanted academic success. I was moving up the ladder at UCSF, uh, research, grants, teaching, running the unit at San Francisco General. For those of you that don't know, San Francisco General is, is where the, all the UC people train. That's where we train, the county hospital. And then the 60s hit. And my first formulation of that was January 1967, the human being. I'm up at UC sticking LSD into mice. <laughs> studying it. Really? <clears throat> studying the effects of it. Yeah, writing papers. Studying amphetamine into mice. Looking at the patterns of behavior of animal models. Uh, it was some fascinating stuff. I didn't do this, but the, there's this spider test that if you put LSD in the water, the spider walks upside down, and you use that to find out if there's LSD in the water. So there's all this fascinating science, and this was before LSD got a bad name. It was still the use of LSD for therapy. Steve has referenced that in his books and his previous seminars, and we're gonna do a theme issue of our journal on the rebirth of psychedelic medicine, but I say rebirth because in that early 60s period, that was the psychedelic era. Uh, Alan Watts, Sidney Cohen, the use of LSD for psychotherapy. There was this interesting biography by Cary Grant who took LSD. So here was the study of LSD from a pharmacological point of view and the use of the psychedelics for therapy. And then the counterculture discovered it. Ken Kesey, the... Uh, Mary Prankster, Kenya passed the electric acid Kool-Aid test, and all this stuff was growing up, and then the human being happened. So I went down there, and a lot of people observed it, and um, uh, were greatly influenced by it, because everybody had their different perception. Me, my influence is it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen, the idea that Thousands of people would take LSD and go out and dance in the park. A few of them had bad trips, most of them had fun. The city was totally freaked out. They had the police department out there and, they, and the, the, the head of the police says, we could have guarded this place with kindergarten. You know, nobody got in a fight. Everybody loved each other. And they said, and after everybody picked up their garbage. They'd never seen anything like this in their life. Remember, their school's in Kizar Stadium, where everybody got drunk, got in fights, fell down the steps, left crap all over the place. And suddenly, within walking distance of Kizar, you had all these tripped out hippies, uh, 
having this celebration, and on the stage was Timothy Leary, turn on, tune in, drop out, Allen Ginsberg chanting, uh, Richard Alpert, Grateful Dead playing, and then as I was walking home, there had this big room there in the hate. And in there it was Timothy Leary, Richard Alper, or, uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg, uh, Richard Alpert. Ram Dass. Ram Dass. 200 people t- taking, taking LSD is called, can you pass the acid test? And then there was somebody in the back in a coffin uh, having a death rebirth experience. You know, <laughs> something is happening. It was just like Bakersfield. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this is no longer, this isn't Bakersfield. So there was this countercultural revolution that I happened to be in the middle of. But I became part of it after I took LSD myself. I had a spiritual experience. Um, I had, uh, those of you that have taken psychedelics know that there's a produce a totally different view of the world. Everything is connected. And this idea that uh, these things are separate uh, became all connected and part of one. And that was really the vision that I carried forth in starting eight Ashbury Free Clinics. Um, well, let's, let's come to that. Yeah. I want to back up just to, to yeah. the year before, in 66, in there was actually, you were part of a UCSF conference or meeting about health policy, health care. Uh, at that point, I think Phil Lee, Dr. Phil Lee, was the mm-hmm. chancellor. He has also been involved in the founding and board chair of Commonweal here, so there's a link here as well. But that's where, we've, we've explored this just in more recently, that's where you came up with a slogan, or a, a credo even. Mm-hmm. So you say something about how that came about. Okay, uh, my recollection, this is what happens when two old-timers get together. You get your years a little off. My recollection is that that occurred in 68, 67. It's all right, I wasn't born yet. (laughs) I'm kidding. kidding. And this is the value of history because now UCSF has archived all of our materials. It's really quite an honor. And there's scholars from all over the world coming to study that. So... um, in 66, they had the war on poverty, and it was the Watts riot. And they started the Watts Clinic. It was called a regionalized clinic in Watts. And there was a friend of mine uh, that was a uh, African-American nurse in the health department named Flo Stroud that told me about this. And so uh, when the, all the kids started pouring into San Francisco General, we saw that living in that neighborhood, I knew that this was just the tip of the iceberg, and it was going to be this huge problem because the, the John Phillips had written this song, Come to San Francisco with a flower in your hair. Real interesting because we just said at our conference that Steve and I co-chaired Mackenzie Phillips, his daughter. And she spoke, and it was also interesting because that's when the Grateful Dead was playing, Jefferson Airplane, Carlos Santana, they'd go down to the panhandle. I'm describing this, some of you know all about this, but this is all in imagery all across the country now. 
The Panhandle is this little area in San Francisco where they used to, the wealthy used to promenade their horses. Well, what happened was the, the bands moved into these semi-abandoned communes, took psychedelics, developed their music, went down to the Panhandle, played in front of 10,000 tripped-out hippies, and developed this psychedelic sound that later, as a result of the Monterey Pop Festival, revolutionized music at that time. In other words, what we're talking about is a very small 10-block area. And the psychedelic sound was developed there. There's all these pictures of Jerry Garcia on a ramp truck during the summer of love, and Carlos Santana's uh, written a book about to develop his music. Stephen actually interviewed him uh, about how he developed his music in that era. Also, Mickey Hart, the drummer for uh, The Grateful Dead, is doing a, uh, a study with a neurolinguist at UCSF. Because it turns out, by the study of the brain, this type of music penetrates other structures of the brain. <laughs> and it almost is like a, a magic potion. And remember, the thing that was so revolutionary about this music, the record companies, you've got two minutes. You've got to plot your record. Well, the dead played for two hours, <laughs> and the people loved it. <laughs> Couldn't get them to leave. Uh, in part because when your senses are altered, you don't have a, a, a start and a stop. You just have a keep on going. <laughs> and uh, so we started seeing all of this, and then the diggers had uh, the, um, they call the Free City. Peter Coyote spoke here, and he, he and I have talked about it. Is where did free come from? In other words, there's all these historians, and the free clinic movement, as we'll get to later, swept the United States. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. David Smith and Steve Heilig. So where did it come from? It came from a very specific interaction. I wanted to start this clinic. I wrote a written proposal. It's handwritten in the archives. I took it to the city, and they thoroughly rejected it. They said, absolutely no way. We don't want these people here. We don't like them. They got long hair. They use drugs. They smell bad going to deny them health care so they go away. Now, what does that remind you of? What's happening today? And we'll get to that, but I'll focus down because Steve is, likes to run a tight ship here. <laughs> so Peter had the diggers right near where we lived on Page Street, and they had this free store and free food and everything. They tried to get the medical students down there to do free medical care. But it's really hard to practice medicine on the street. You know, you've got to have supplies, and you've got to have a structure, and you've got to have malpractice insurance. So I, uh, being rejected by the city, I had this administrator who went down to City Hall, and um, he found out that you could have... If you'd find a property zone doctor's office, you can call it whatever you want. 
So we found a doctor's office at 558 Clayton Street, which is a historic site now. And I called it David E. Smith, MD and Associates, doing business at the Heat Asbury Free Clinic. It was on a recent television show that uh, uh, it was a way of getting around the opposition from the city. Not, I, I, remember, this is ancient history. Right now, the city loves us. We're part of the DNA. I get all these awards. Steve was there. So I don't want to say that it's not, it's, it's not that way now. They've accepted us. Um, uh, everybody supports us. Then it was in opposition to. I mentioned that because obviously what I want to do in this career is to teach young people. And don't have a, have a principle, have an idea, but don't expect the establishment to support you. you know, stick with your principles. So in, the, in it, 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 so in the middle of this meeting at UCSF, just had an alum day, it was an exactly meeting where I said it, there was the health department. All these kids coming in. They rejected the proposal. I actually wrote that, took that proposal and published a paper called a regionalized healthcare clinic in the Haight-Ashbury. The director of the health department was LSD Socks. On the panel was Willie Brown, who lived in the Haight and was always a supporter of us. But the health department talked about the healthcare crisis, the drugs, the venereal disease, uh, we want them to leave. You know, or they can go to the emergency room if they if they needed help. Well, we found out that didn't work. You know, if you had a bad trip in the park, you went to the emergency room. It looked like the police department, and that made it worse. So I stood up in a fit of passion, a typical fit of passion, and said, "Healthcare is a right, not a privilege." Okay. Yeah. So that was the slogan. The founding of the Haight Ashbury Free Clinic. But just jumping forward, that. Those exact words were quoted by President Bill Clinton when he was trying to reform healthcare, and they were quoted by President Obama when he signed the ACA, Obamacare. And Bernie. And Bernie. <laughs> healthcare is right, not a privilege. Yeah, so. now I don't want anyone I want to take credit for that. It was really Ted Kennedy in the 70s that started the health reform movement. And then at the UCSF, my mentor was Phil Lee, who got Medicare through. But this idea, of healthcare is a right, not a privilege. The idea got started during the summer of love. And, you know, uh, language is a royal road to the unconscious, according to Freud. And once you create a term, you have to gapple with it. Is healthcare right or is it a privilege? Do you deny a segment of the population healthcare? Or do you take care of them? So by creating a, 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 a term, people nationwide have, have, to, have to deal with it. And that's what's happening in the national dialogue now. But this was a, the founding principle of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. And I, I, I just want to expand on this because I'm being interviewed about this a lot. So well, we've always had charity clinics. No, this isn't a charity clinic. Free is a philosophical concept. It's true we don't charge at the point of delivery of care. You know, if the individual wants to donate or has insurance, that's great. But it is non-judgmental health care, free from discrimination. That's the principle of free. Remember, a lot of the clinics that are charity clinics are involved in churches. You have to be part of a particular this or part of that. This is non-judgmental health care, non-discriminatory health care, 
that doesn't reject you because they don't like your philosophy, your religion, your sexual orientation, uh, the color of your skin. And that's called mission-driven healthcare. And that is really the principle we stuck by because remember, we took care of the gays. That's how we got involved in the HIV epidemic. We started, uh, 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 Janice Joplin did a benefit for us called Dr. Sunday's Medicine Show because we set up a women's need clinic to take care of the medical aspects of criminal abortion. Um, uh, The Vietnam vets came to our clinic because one of the sorriest parts of American history is how we treated the veterans when they came back from Vietnam. They were treated like garbage. They were alienated from the VA, so they came to our clinic. In fact, Country Joe, just uh, Steve and I were there, although he lasted longer than I did. He lasted the whole show, only made it to halftime. But Country Joe McDonald, who was very much part of that, um, uh, talked about our, our clinic, and I've had a very nice interchange with him about the benefits and the music and what, what was going on at that time. So... If I may just make one additional comment about those times. So this is a period in which addiction is a crime, the 60s. 1915, they passed the Harrison Narcotic Act. 1919, the Supreme Court ruled that physicians, even if well-intended, treating an addict or aiding or abetting a criminal. So this all started at towards the end of the criminalization era. It was still a crime to treat addiction in an open, community-based type of program. You said that you've, you were committing dozens of felonies a day right. when you were doing this. <laughs> right. So I, I, I think I figured about, we're treating about 100 felonies a day because that's how many heroin addicts we were detoxing. But again, what happened was they had given up on the hate. They had walled it off. So you'd take 100,000 kids, put them in the hate ashbury. Steve was there. Steve, Steve was one of our early volunteers. Steve Walsh, when she, yeah, he... he uh, prominent psychiatrist Prominent psychiatrist. He remembers that period. It was crazy. But if you came down there and you did your thing, you know, we had all this talent. Steve and all these physicians from UCSF and all these students and all these young people because they wanted to volunteer. That was the era of volunteerism. And that was the place you did it. So police says, okay, if you do it there, you can do it. Just don't do it anyplace else. So the beginnings of the field of addiction medicine, which is now a nationwide board certified specialty, there was a physician from Marin County that came to volunteer at our clinic, developed our techniques for addiction treatment, detoxification, came to Marin County, did the same thing with a young addict over here, and was arrested, charged with a felony. Now, remember, that's history. Now there is so much treatment in Marin County. In fact, the leading cause of death over here is drug overdose. Then it, all the addicts were in the Haight-Ashbury. There's none here in Marin County. And if you set up treatment, the addicts will come. That's, that was the perception. So that was the beginning of the field of addiction medicine. And then what happened is the DEA started sending in undercover agents into our clinic. And 
you know, one of the things that, that I found out, and I've actually seen them, that they had undercover agents across Clayton Street. Remember, the side of the clinic is 558 Clayton Street, and the old detox unit is 529. So the undercover agents on the roof, and they had all these pictures, everybody coming and going, and my picture was on the wall, and they sent in undercover agents. And what happened, an undercover agent, for those of you that don't know, goes in and fakes like they want a drug. And then the doctor doesn't do an examination, and they just get the drug. It's called a script doctor. That's what they thought was happening. The undercover agents came out and says, we can't get drugs out of them. In fact, they want to take us off of drugs. <laughs> and and uh, uh, Matt O'Connor was the head of the local uh, DEA at that time. And he said, you know, I don't know why you're doing what you're doing, but, you know, the agents come back and said they not only can't get you get drugs from you, they want to get you off of drugs, and the undercover agents aren't on drugs. You know, they don't want to be examined and treated and detoxed because they're not on anything. It's a fake. But they said you're dealing in the waiting room, and you've got to stop that. So that created um, the famous door. No holding, no dealing to clean up the waiting room. But Matt O'Connor of the DEA, and I have pictures of all this, so I'll leave them to look at. Um, Matt O'Connor basically had been with me on a panel at UCSF. So it was UCSF that was our protection against all of this. Mentors like Phil Lee, professors. Uh, there was a big article in Look Magazine about me in 67. My malpractice insurance carrier canceled my malpractice insurance, which is the key to getting all these volunteers. The San Francisco Medical Society, Steve was on the Medical Society at that time, and got me malpractice insurance. Of course, Steve is, uh, works with them, uh, Steve Heilig uh, uh, works with them now. So the San Francisco Medical Society has always been very progressive. So what happens is, you, and there's this book called Season of the Witch, which is really the best history of that period of time. San Francisco then was very conservative, Irish Catholic. So this idea that San Francisco was liberal is not true. But you had this bastions of progressivism, and this little thing happened at a time in which you need all of that to survive. Bill Graham did benefits for us. Uh, David Perlman wrote an article because his son went to the Fillmore and they found out we were taking care of the kids from the Fillmore. So he did this article, Medical Mission in the Hate. Uh, Bill Graham read it, we did benefits. Monterey Pop Festival, Lou Adler uh, sent us a $25,000 donation that got us through it. And we just had the 50th anniversary of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinics and the Monterey Pop Festival when we gave Lou a rock medicine t-shirt. <laughs> because what has evolved is now the Haight-Ashbury Clinic has merged with Walden House. It's the largest private nonprofit medical addiction program in the state. Sees 30,000 patients a month. It's a primed service delivery to the homeless. And the there are now something like uh, 19, 15,000 free clinics nationwide. Wow. And it started there. So that, that spring, when the news was coming and the song was out, 
100,000 people expected in the hate. Other hospitals didn't want to take care of him. The uh, health department, which you know, I don't know if you caught the name, the health director at that time was Ellis. D initial socks, LSD socks. Um, ironic, but um, so you got enough together to rent that office. Yeah. Did you think at that time, you know, and volunteers and, and just donated equipment? There was a great quote in the Chronicle the other day. One of the early guys said, "Our first piece of equipment was a lava lamp." Right. So, you know, <laughs> but um, so you got that at least the minimal together. Did you think at that time it was going to be a temporary, just to, for the summer of love and the invasion, and then go on and do something else, or was this? You know, you were you were directly running and working at the clinic for you know so many years. All right. And was it two million patient encounters cumulative, or Correct. more than that over all the years that you were the the direct? Yeah, I, I had no long term plan. Yeah. Um, so was, and you're, you're 27 years old. At 28. That 28. 28. And everybody okay, was okay. young. Everybody was under 30. Yeah. So. You don't really develop a long-term career plan at that age. You respond to the time, you develop your principles. I had no family, I had no children. I've now got four children and three grandchildren. I wouldn't do that now in a million years. <laughs> That's what young people do that have a, a vision. And, so, so, but the summer of love, then you know that ended pretty quickly in terms of the whole ethos of it, and it went south. It went bad, correct? Fairly quick. Um, the drugs of choice changed into things much less friendly, speed and heroin in particular. So, but you, so you must have, you must have seen that the need was still very much there. It was just different. The neighborhood Correct. declined. Everybody left who was there before, or most people, and uh, you, you guys hung in through all of that for many years. Correct. And well, that was the test of your principles. In other words, if you really believe that healthcare is a right, not a privilege. Then do you close the clinic because it stops being hippies and starts being heroin addicts and uh, speed freaks and HIV-infected individuals? And there was a lot of pressure on me to close the clinic then. I said, well, it's a different population than what you set up for. Uh, I said, yeah, but our founding principle is health care is a right, not a privilege, non-judgmental care. It doesn't say health care is a right, a privilege non-judgmental health care if you like the population. And it's, it's clear that I very much identified with that early population. There's absolutely no question about it. Um, he usually has a tie-dye shirt on. I was hoping he'd wear it. You can go to a conference and he's wearing a suit but with a tie-dye shirt on underneath. Um, you know, i dumb kid from Southern California. I rode my bicycle down Haight Street in the mid-70s because I thought it might be cool and it was a scary neighborhood. It was boarded up with people lying in the street and I wanted out of there quick. You know, it was very, it was threatening actually. You still lived in the neighborhood and we're still doing that. And then by the 80s, it was coming back right. uh, in a way, but the clinic was very established by the time uh, yeah, I It's came interesting to see history that it was the gay movement that started the urban renewal. In other words, things went way, way down, and then they had these beautiful old rundown Victorians. <clears throat> and the gays moved in, and they get these old Victorians at dirt cheap prices, and they'd fix them up to be very beautiful. And so if you look back at the history, the gay culture were the agents of urban renewal in the Haight-Ashbury. Because that now is some of the most, they call the Haight-Ashbury now our lower Pacific Heights. Some of yeah. the most beautiful houses in the city are in the Haight-Ashbury. 
And those were the rundown, speed-freak dumps uh, in that 60s and 70s period. But it takes individuals that <clears throat> have an artistic expression. You want to get these old, these old houses and fix them up. And I live in one. I mean, they're beautiful. My wife loves it. She fixes it all up. Uh, uh, Victorian tours and the hate are the cool thing. Well, hippie tours, too. Hippie tours. <laughs> so this had become, by the 80s, by the time I met you, it had become your career, obviously. You yes. Were, you were you know, a famed fellow. That One of my favorite stories is you know, Dave was getting uh, the UC Medal, which is the biggest award that UCSF gives, and one of, one of his professors and advisors from back then had said, what happened? What went wrong? You were such a promising young man. Right. <laughs> So you mentioned the issue or the field of addiction medicine itself. Uh, as noted, it used to be a felony. Then it became sort of a non-entity within specialties. If you were to mark, you know, when you designating your specialty with the AMA and the medical board and everything, it was an other then. There was no checkbox for addiction medicine. Correct. And uh, that's one of my first memories is meeting you and saying maybe we can push, you know, you saying maybe we can help push this through using the medical society and so forth to make this mm -hmm. an actually recognized specialty. And um, there was a core group of people mostly in California who did this. And I mean, that is, it's, it's hard to state how big a deal that is if you're not in the medical world of having something that is established. You, get, you can get credit for it. You can uh, you know, set up practice that way. It's an established specialty, and so much of that is due to you. I mean, I, Thank you. I think that is one of the... the I'd like to expand on that narrative <clears throat> to go back to an earlier time. We set up these, this addiction program, treating 100 addicts a day, and I heard about this doctor getting arrested. You know, he was, had been volunteering there. He was a good guy. And then I got a call from Jess Bromley, who became the, the eventual delegate to the AMA. And, and they said, well, they just arrested this doctor for doing what you do 100 times a day. And I said, you know, I'm committing all these felonies every day as long as I stay in the head Ashbury, but that doesn't make any medical sense whatsoever. If you have diabetes in Bolinas, and you have diabetes in Bakersfield, the diabetes should be treated the same way. But if you take addiction, you have addiction in Bolinas, it's a crime. I mean, it's a disease, and you have addiction in Bakersfield, it's a crime. So the public policy made absolutely no medical or scientific sense. What happened then is that we had a very well thought out strategy it's called the California Society of Addiction Medicine. And we said, how can we legitimize this? The way you legitimize it is you integrate with the mainstream of medicine. So our initial vehicle was the San Francisco Medical Society, the most progressive. Then it was the CMA. Then it was the AMA. But all these early motions got started in the San Francisco Medical Society. That's why medicine, medicine is very stratified. Starts at the local level, goes to the next level, goes to the next level. So the West Coast branch of addiction medicine is in the Haight-Ashbury. San Francisco Medical Society, California Medical Association, AMA. And the whole, but the strategy was to legitimize the treatment of addiction through organized medicine. And organized medicine is a very powerful force. You don't 
uh, we were talking about this uh, on, on the, in the car up there. That initially uh, the AMA was, uh, I, I might be overstating this, but it was for price and for which became Trump Care, and now they're vigorously opposed to it because of the deletion of the uninsured, and particularly the CMA is opposed to it. Well, those are powerful forces, you know. Old Doc Smith and the hate Ashbury can be opposed to it, and you know I'll get invited out to Commonweal to talk about it. But it won't be that much impact. But if you can move these giant organizations based on evidence, that not only is it inhumane and discriminatory, it costs money. So that's how things work. So it's interesting in this dialogue. I'll just be very brief about it, but. So we start this series of motions. Actually, Steve was there when we started it. And we'd always had this relationship with the San Francisco Medical Society because they'd come to our aid. And I'm, you know, part of the San Francisco culture. They knew me. They knew what I did. Uh, I was part of it. It's the reason I became part of it, so that I would get acceptance. I was out of a state-supported university. I couldn't be that bad, you know. It went through the UC system. So then you go up to the state. Well, they know less of you. Then you go up to the national level. And then you have to create a name that medicine organizes, recognizes. So the 24th specialty was um, emergency medicine. I said, well, let's call it addiction medicine because doctors understand addiction medicine. That's a term that clicks with them. So when we went to get our American side of addiction medicine recognized, we were in front of the the, um, the uh, policy committee. What happens is you, you go in front of the committee and you present your case, and then they ask you questions. And every physician recognized cigarette addiction. They might be a little ambivalent about alcoholism, more ambivalent about heroin addiction, but they all recognized cigarette addiction. And they all had patients that died of cigarette addiction and lung cancer. And they said, does addiction medicine encompass cigarette addiction? Yes, we just included that. Addiction medicine is the study and treatment of addictive disease. All drugs that produce addiction. So that was the pivotal thing that helped us break through. And we had to get all the specialties and supporters. Some of the psychiatry was ambivalent. Uh, but we had to negotiate with all of them. That's what you do. You know, say this is... You know, we're not going to step on your turf. This is what we do. That's what happens in organized medicine. There is another force that I became aware of, which is the lobbyists. The lobbyists fought tooth and nail to not get cigarette addiction recognized by the AMA at that time. In fact, we just had at our conference, we had one of the pioneers in this, Stanton Glantz at UCSF. He had the tobacco papers. And what was happening at the time this motion was passed, Big Tobacco was back with the regionalized uh, local uh, medical societies, Texas and this, that, and the other thing, and says, if you vote against this motion that cigarettes are addicting, which simultaneously would have defeated the motion to accept addiction medicine as part of the specialty, we will fund you for tort reform. And our delegate, Jess Bromley, stood up in the front of the thing, and he told the whole audience, he was 6'6 Mormon, he was like a preacher, mm -hmm. and he found that 
if you shine light on the darkness of lobbyists, it dissolves. <laughs> and people in the, in the, in the House of Delegates were, were stunned. I mean, as we were speaking on behalf of that, the tobacco company lobbyists were in the back rooms offering the state delegates money if they'd vote against this. Now, the way they offered them money... I still have an official AMA ashtray. Right. <laughs> so, the way they offered from them the money, 50s. they didn't say, here, I'll give you that to do that. We say, we will give you... Uh, X thousands of dollars for lawyers to fight tort reform mm -hmm. if you will vote against this. But the historical part of this was uh, Stanton Glantz had published the tobacco papers. The tobacco papers shined the light that the tobacco companies knew that cigarettes caused lung cancer and were addicting 20 years before, and yet were publishing ads and forming institutes that said, Tobacco is non-addicting. 30 years before, they would form, form these phony institutes. I mean, that truly was fake news. <laughs> it was yeah. all in the tobacco papers. They had tobacco companies spies at UCSF seeing people coming in because Stanton Glantz is, a, is a brilliant. What he did was he put all of that in the university library so that you could access it. Because they'd file lawsuits, all the lawyer, this, that, and the other thing to, to hide this. Well, then scholars could look at it. Stanton published it in the JMA. The head of the JMA at that time uh, was a physician that we knew from addiction medicine. He was under intense pressure to not publish that. And he historic, heroically went ahead and published it. And it blew the lid off. It's the basis of these billion-dollar lawsuits against the tobacco companies. So these, these things are still happening in, in various ways, but yeah. these are breakthroughs. Um, in addiction medicine itself, would you s say that it is still something of an uphill battle in terms of getting enough people into it? When you look at uh, the need around the country and the threats in terms of you know Trump and others trying to defund a lot of addiction treatment, um, it's not the most popular specialty. Uh, it, it's growing, though. Yeah. Uh, we now have uh, one of the great things. I attend the rounds at San Francisco General Hospital. We now have addiction medicine fellowships. Dr. Paula Lum has a whole training program at UC. In other words, to move medicine, I tell the young people to talk to me, you can't start like I did. It has to be in the curriculum. It has to be legitimized in the, in, in the training process. And the thing that moved the needle was Obamacare. Yeah. That's why I so much believe it, because they mainstreamed, they said addiction mm. is like any other chronic disease like diabetes, mm. and therefore it has to be part of the essential benefits. And if it's part of the essential benefits, you have to train the workforce. So it is not an uphill battle. Uh, doesn't mean that we've, we're arrived there. We're making all of this progress, but the addiction problem is moving ahead of us. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. David Smith and Steve Heilig. One young person dies or overdoses every four minutes in the United States. Hundred young people an hour die of overdose in the United States. It is all over the United States. You're talking about opiates. Opiates. Yeah. 
It turns out that there now last year were 53,000 deaths from drug overdoses, approximately the same demographic that was in the Vietnam War. Every year they have the equivalent of the same, because it's mostly 20s and 30s that are dying of drug overdoses. It's so serious that it's bent the mortality curve. In other words, in, in actuarial tables, it's supposed to be, I'm 78, old people like me. I, I, I'm 78, so I call myself old. Because my life expectancy is supposed to be 75. I'm living on house money. <laughs> if you kill a 22-year-old, you bend the mortality curve. If I die, you know, I'm supposed to die at this age. It, they call it the equivalent of the AIDS epidemic. If those of you that lived through the AIDS epidemic, it's huge in the Haight-Ashbury. Suddenly, what happened to Billy that runs the little restaurant? He's dead. God, he was 25, 30. What happened to Johnny who runs the flower shop? He's 24. He's dead. In other words, it wiped out a whole generation. And that's what the opiate epidemic is doing. So it is very serious, and what is happening is the Surgeon General's report, which was the report that we used at the conference, says that there's a great need for workforce training of all health professionals. In other words, we've overcome the hurdle that it needs to be done, but now it becomes the resources and manpower to develop it. So that's the, the big move. And I don't want to mean that we were home free. But the initial, you know, it's, it's kind of like the uh, Winston Churchill said, this isn't the uh, end and it's not, it's the uh, end of the beginning. That's where we're at. And now you have all these things going on. You have, uh, it's in the newspapers. It's hit the red states. Uh, it's not just... People in, California, in San Francisco that are dying that the administration doesn't care about, it's the sons of steel workers in Pittsburgh and West Virginia and coal miners. It's actually so, more that in this case. More there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know. So, we, I mean, this is a pendulum and it's a vastly complex yeah. thing too, but we've gone back and forth, you know, between the, there's a lot of discussion about treating of pain versus addiction, but the report just came out this week that actually over half of all prescriptions for opiates are for non-pain issues. For, right mental health issues and so forth, but that's a big one. I want, I want to go back because I think some people here, including myself, want to hear a little bit more about rock medicine. Um, uh, so Bill Graham actually came and saved the clinic when he saw what you were doing with the first benefit, and that resulted in a very fruitful relationship that continues now in the formation of an actual uh, entity called Rock Medicine. Cool. How do you remember that in the beginning? I mean, the first big concerts were at Kizar were bands like Led Zeppelin and uh, things like Bob that. Dylan, Bob Dylan, yeah. I've got pictures all on my wall, Neil Young. Remember, my office now at 856 Stanion is a half a block from Keysart. Right. And I always love people to come in and I give them all the pictures and a little tour. And we go down to uh, Hayden Cole. And on the Cole Street side, you look up and you'll see the big dove. Healthcare is a right now to privilege. Love needs care. It's become a, a real... You know, you go to the center of all these ideas, and I, I encourage you to come down there. Um, 
Well, was, my favorite is there's a great picture of Dave with George Harrison arm in arm, and George is wearing a Haight Ashbury for you. Right. Him. Anyway, he did a t shirt, he did a conference, I mean, a concert for you, too. So, what, how this came about was that all these drug problems were growing. And then they had Altamont. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope there's a book on it, and I'm assuming people remember Altamont. So, what happened? You had Woodstock. Judged as a success. So the Rolling Stones wanted to have a similar concert out here. And Bill Graham said it's going to be a disaster. He actually encouraged us not to go out there because they said it's going to be a disaster. Totally uncontrolled. They had a sound stage about like that. They had the security guard with the Hells Angels that were all on speed. It was a total disaster. People got killed, knifed, terrible publicity. It almost ruined the outdoor concert. And so Bill Graham's assistant, Jerry Pompili, said to Bill, if we don't get better medical services, somebody's going to get killed and the insurance companies won't fund us. So Bill, who was our patron saint, came to us and said, you have to have uh, we got to have medical medical services at the concerts. And the first one was the snack concert. That's how rock medicine came about. It was very much of an interaction between the um, Ashbury Clinic and Bill Graham Presents, myself and Dr. George Gay. And now rock medicine delivers 1,000 concerts a year, uh, 3,000 volunteers. They got a huge rockmed.org if any of you want to volunteer and come out and clean out a barf bucket or talk about <laughs> a bad trip. We have hundreds of new medical professionals that come. We'll have a setting, you know, we, we, we will have a big concert and we will have, uh, we will be better staffed than many hospitals. And all we give them is a T-shirt. <laughs> because they like to do it, they like the culture, they like the interaction, they're great with the EMTs and the young people. So uh, if you want to look at what the free clinic is like in the beginning, you come to the Rock Medicine. Now, I'm going to just say one thing. I know it's not on the agenda, but I promised somebody that I would tell the story. So here's Altamont. It's in Season of the Witch. I says, I'm going out to lecture in Bolinas, and they said, be sure and tell the Hells Angels story. So, <laughs> fulfill my commitment to our friends. So, here is Altamont. Here is the Hells Angels. Here is speed. Here is violence. So, I'm at San Francisco General Hospital, and then the Haight-Ashbury Clinic would be the referral source. Everybody has hepatitis, shooting speed, craziness. So this kid comes out, he's yellow. And I said, oh, you're referred by the Haight-Ashbury Clinic? And he says, no, Haight-Ashbury Clinic is funded by Papa Al. I said, that's a bunch of crap. Papa Al is just this guy that hangs out at our clinic. And everybody is weird then. Charlie Manson, Papa Al, crazy people. Uh, It was just total chaos. What would happen is... um, 
such and such would have an acid trip and he was white rabbit. And the next day he would have a bad trip and he would go back to being Harvey Schwartz from Cleveland. And we would say, <laughs> just be the same name every time you come in so we can find your medical chart. So that was this chaos. So I go back, because I'd seen this Papa Al hanging out there. I didn't think much of it. He was just around all the time. And I said, I just found out that you're telling people that you're using a speed uh, dealing to control their clinic. You have to, you've got to leave. That's terrible. So, you know, that's totally false, and that can get us closed. So he goes out, and he says, issues a contract on my life and, and Al Rose's life. He says, for $100 a speed, you can keep, we'll give you $100 a speed if you kill Smith and Rose. Well, the street was so crazy then that just that rumor, there'd probably be 10 people that would want to do it. You know, it was just total madness. So I, like a good citizen, go down to the Park Police Station. If you know this, Park Police Station is just there on Stanion Street. Just walk down there. And I go in, officer, see that man over there, that Papa Al? He just put a contract out on my life. I want you to do something. Police officer said, we, will, we can't do anything until after he does something. <laughs> I say, I don't want you to do something after he does something. I want you to do something before he does something. Sorry, you know, you go back into your, your world there. So I go back, and there was all these angels around, and uh, they were all dressed in the leather. And there was a guy in our clinic, because what would happen is that we would have these they bring all these pharmaceuticals in, and then the pharmacy students would build these shelves. That's how Daryl and Alba got involved in uh, uppers, downers, all arounders. So we had a fully stocked pharmacy <coughs> operating all the time, and they the only cost was the cost of the boards for, for the pharmacy. Because, that, again, that's a different era. They would donate all these medications. Well, there was this fellow there, so in a black leather jacket, and I come back and I you know, I was freaked out. In fact, they gave me a gun. Oh I had a, a, a shoulder holster and a gun. If there's anybody in this world that should not have a gun, it's me. Mm -hmm. Last time I shot a gun was I was shooting squirrels off of cans. I was shooting cans. I never could hit a squirrel. I was <laughs> shooting cans with my 22 rifle. So here I'm in the hate with a gun. And I just pull it out to check and I shoot a hole in my dashboard. Oh, no. <laughs> a long time I had this bullet hole. I said, this is not working at all. <laughs> so I go in and I go blah, 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 blah to this guy. And he says, well, I know Sonny Barger, who's head of the Hells Angels. So he calls up Sonny Barger, gives me the phone. I go blah, 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 blah. Sonny Barger says, we will take care of it. Only time, things he ever said to me. So he sends a couple angels out to Papa Al, who's a very visible figure right there, and he says, you're our Smith's insurance policy. If he gets hit going across the street, you're dead. If he, uh, you are his insurance policy, you are dead if anything happens to him. So Papa Al calls off the contract, and, you know, everything gets back to normal. And then somebody spreads the rumor that Papa Al is an informant and he disappears. He's probably part of a freeway somewhere. So this was 
this whole area was ripe with paranoia, hell's angels, addiction, craziness, uh, police, DEA agents. And it was just, that's when it came really bad. And then because we had addiction treatment and the vets wanted to come to the addiction treatment, that's when things started to change, as we've already talked about. So one of the things you did out of this, I mean, in, in the medical world, publishing in journals is a big deal. And you started one back in the 60s, Journal of Psychedelic Drugs. This, is a, this one is a complete collector's item. This is just volume three, which is from 1970. So you started in 67. This one has a, a profile of one Charlie Manson that's quite fascinating, who was then in the hate. But we, you've continued it all these years, and we worked together on this. We did one just last year on cannabis. And so... And this is called Cannabis in California, Science, Policy, Prevention, Profits, and Perils. Um, you, were, you joined uh, the coalition of us that was in favor of legalization of cannabis. Um, I know you've taken a lot of flack for this in the addiction medicine world. It's, it's really unusual to have somebody who is so focused on prevention and treatment of addiction to speak out on what could be, you know, what we see it as harm reduction, basically. Um, you, at the same time, you're still treating patients, say you see a lot of particularly young people with uh, cannabis dependency syndrome and so forth. What do you want to say about this? I mean, it's a, it's a balancing act you have to do. Well, this was a really a hard one for me uh, for a number of reasons. And this shows you the power of science and evidence and the power of people you respect. And this gentleman here is one of the people I respect the most. Now, I talked about that I was an episodic alcoholic. Last drink, January 1, 1966. Wow. I discovered marijuana. <laughs> I love marijuana. I smoked it every day. Everybody smoked it every day. <laughs> then my wife is a recovering heroin addict, been in recovery for 40 years, started the first Narcotics Anonymous meeting at our Haight-Ashbury Clinic, and she says, you can smoke pot in this house. I mean, you can smoke pot with your low-life friends in the hate, or you can live in this house, but you can't do both. You know, it was a family intervention by my wife and our son. She said, if you don't stop smoking pot, you're out of the house. Well, I didn't want to get out of the house. So that's when I got into AA. And I still go to AA meetings in, in basically in Marin County, over at Star of the Sea. Then I, so I'm a recovering cannabis-dependent individual. The fact that, that say that cannabis does not produce dependence is total nonsense. What is true is that most people that smoke marijuana don't develop dependency. But there's a subgroup, particularly young people, that do. At Muir Wood, I treat cannabis-dependent young people. And the stuff they're smoking now is so much more powerful than what we smoked back in the day. They're vaping. 70 to 90% THC. So here I am, recovering from cannabis. I don't drink, I don't smoke, um, you know, totally clean, treating cannabis-dependent youth. But I also come out of this era, when I started, 67, you could get 10 years in jail for a single possession of marijuana. In fact, that's one of the things he did. And remember, lower socioeconomic non-white people got it a lot, but then they decided, well, I'm going to make a case out of the hippies. So they would arrest big-time musicians and 
give him 10 years in jail and deport him. That's how they went after the Grateful Dead. So it was the most unjust and ineffective thing. The war on drugs has been a total failure. So to keep people in, uh, in the uh, California Society of Addiction Medicine, this journal, uh, Peter Bannis and Tim Cermak, and Steve Heilig, who's had a huge amount of influence on me, presented the evidence and the policy, and I ended up voting for the initiative. Not because I'm completely happy about it, but they reached a compromise. They listened to us, and Steve is a, was a major force in that. You, you see in the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, they have money for education and prevention of young people for marijuana. That's a compromise. The growers wanted unfettered access to the market. But where is that issue of the journal, Steve? This is, this is what Steve did, the dollar sign. The cover, the cover is the caduceus, the medical caduceus, but the shadow is the dollar sign. Yeah. And the title of this is the shadow nose. And that's what... So. That's what <laughs> with, with the leaves all the way around. That's Steve. And Stanton Glantz is very concerned that the marijuana industry in California will become like the tobacco industry, and it's a very real fear. And remember, I come out of that tobacco period. But also... Uh, Putting people in, 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 in jail for long terms when it harms them and doesn't help society, um, uh, I, could, I could not accept. So, uh, I, I, again, it is un, uh, an injustice of a social policy that's totally ineffective. My personal view which is very much towards drug-free, and the evidence that there should be a new and better policy. Now, as Steve has pointed out, we don't know what's going to happen. All the, the pro-legalization people say, oh, we know it's going to happen, everything is going to be great. The anti-legalization people say, oh, everything's going to go to hell. The evidence is we don't know. So that's why we study it. And there have been studies that have shown, in fact, that there hasn't been an increase in cannabis use among young people. It was always illegal for them. The only thing that's increased is the potency of the marijuana, and that is not influenced by the legality of the drug. That is a producer situation. In other words, you can say that alcohol is illegal, and you can go in there and get pure grain alcohol, whiskey, wine, beer, and you can regulate it, but it is the producer and consumer demand. That's why education of these potent forms is so crucial. The only increase has been in what we call cannabis tourists. What they do is, I smoked marijuana back in the day, and then I, it's now legal, and I'm going to smoke some of this new stuff, and the new stuff is so much stronger, and they end up in the ER thinking they're having a heart attack and they're going to die. And that's what's seen in Colorado. They've had an increase of ER admissions of older people that smoke some of the new stuff, and they think they're going to die. <laughs> and I saw that a very, you know, rock medicine is like a field study of drug exposure. So here was uh, <clears throat> an individual that uh, 
you know, back in the day, it was always interesting because he said, oh, I used to go back to Haight. I used to go to the Haight-Ashbury Clinic when I first came to San Francisco and I didn't have any money. And then I went to school and I got a degree and I started a software company and you know, I got all this money. And so it was the Rolling Stones and he bought a whole front row of seats to the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. That was some thousands of dollars. So he's over there and his daughter's over there. So he says, well... You know, when you go to Rolling Stones, you smoke weed. So she lights up a joint, passes it down. He takes a hit. He thinks he's going to die. <laughs> he comes into the ER. I mean, he comes into our rock medicine. Eyes red, heart pounding, freaking out. I said, no, you know, you're having ad- acute adverse reaction to marijuana. So I just published a paper on it. And he said, like, good intellectual. He says, well, what is a... Was it a peer-reviewed journal? I wanted to make sure that my findings were valid, that he wasn't going to die. Well, came down. We treated him. Uh, no consequences. And he said, that is the strongest stuff I've ever had in my life. I will never do that again. Well, his daughter smoked the same stuff. In fact, she smoked it regularly. So that would be like a field experiment of drug exposure. If you expose a whole lot of people to a drug... Set, setting, physiological characteristics, psychological characteristics, tolerance, how they manifest itself. And so um, the evidence is, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but the legalization of marijuana hasn't proven anybody's case other than, I mean, the the sky's going to fall in case, you know. Bad stuff isn't happening. The ones that have a problem, we're going to have a problem whether it was legal or illegal. There hasn't been a big push, big increase in uh, 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 cannabis in the most vulnerable population. And, you know, we have a long time to go because the concern is still young people. Because if you use potent forms of cannabis during the developmental cycles, there's evidence that it impairs learning. Have a drop in IQ point. So I don't want to. Uh, if you use the cigarette model, we didn't find out about the dangers of cigarettes until years after the exposure. So the jury is out. But uh, we know that putting all these people in jail didn't work. What has done the most impact in terms of cigarettes? Peer pressure. Look, in fact, one of the things that people have done with cigarette prevention is. Let's mobilize peer pressure. Right now, a young person, now this is over here in Northern California, but it's happening across the country, but Northern California is what we've studied this most. If you light up a cigarette, your young people come down on you. You know, they get education in school about the dangers of cigarette smoking, about the evils of the tobacco company. So education and prevention does work, but the model is not the model of the illicit drugs. It's the model of the uh, tobacco cessation programs. And I think on the long term, that's what's going to have the most impact on the susceptible population. We had, as I mentioned, a talk uh, last month about this <clears throat> psychedelics and therapy. Um, another touchy issue in a way, because in your mainstream world of addiction medicine and so forth, all of this is still a no-no because of the great uh, overreactions and so forth of before. Um, 
we're going to do a theme issue of our journal on this sometime too. Um, what do you see as the potential there? I mean, are you okay? I mean, this is a, this is again the the pendulum turning mm-hmm. uh, back and forth. Um, do you see potential in this uh, for some of oh, these? Oh yeah, there's a these... lot of interesting uh, studies coming out. They're not government funded, but they're coming from different areas, other countries. Fascinating stuff with uh, cannabidiol and cannabis. And, and for those of you, I'll just give you a little brief lesson. It's in the journal, but in the brain you have the <clears throat> CB1 receptors, which THC fits into, and the CB2 receptor with cannabidiol. The brain has a balance of uh, CB1 and CB2, and CB2 is anti-THC. So when you have a plant, it creates a balance. It doesn't want the toxic plant. It doesn't want the brain to be toxic. There's a natural balance. Well, now they've found out that cannabidiol is the thing that has the most therapeutic benefits. When you look, when they've done all this research, and this is, you know, advances of brain research. Science is going to answer a lot of these questions. They've found out that there's more... Um, CB2 receptors outside the, the brain than there is inside the brain. And it's one of the reasons that, that CB2 helps with arthritis and this. It helps with these peripheral receptors. Now, they've got to have a little THC in there to penetrate the brain. But what happens is you go to the apothecariums and they will give you a mixture of the CB1 and CB2. And, you know, I know it's being recorded, but, you know, this is... Northern yeah. California, so it doesn't no, matter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens is there's all these older people that have arthritis. They can't have trouble walking, but they don't want to take marijuana because they're out of the reefer madness era. So my wife, who is in recovery for 40 years, doesn't use anything. She goes down to the apothecarium, gets a green card. Now, for those of you that have never gotten a green card, what you do is about as easy to get as a Blockbuster video card. Maybe, you know, a little easier. All you have to do is walk in and say, I hurt. Fine. Here's a recommendation. So she goes in. This is Amoeba Records on 8th Street. And she said, doctor says, well, do you have pain? She says, yeah. My neck hurts. The knees hurt. I've got a little bit. He says, it's enough. She says, we old people hurt all over the place. Well, they just want one pain. So she goes down to the apothecarium and gets these little gummies because the older people don't want to smoke. She takes them up and she goes around and she passes it to these older people and they can get up and walk. Mm. It reduces, it has an anti-inflammatory effect. Uh, there's fascinating potential there. Then you've got the issues with microdosing of LSD. You've got the issues with ay- ayahuasca. You've got, and this is going to be in medicine and psychiatry because what's happening is government does not want these studies to happen. Pharmaceutical companies don't want these studies to happen because they can't control it. So it's going to have to occur in the underground, in this alternative world that many of you on Bellinas are part of. 
<laughs> and then what happens, it's called hypothesis generating. The hypothesis generating is like at UCSF in the pain clinic, the people come in and they say, well, you know, I took these CBD-rich compounds and my pain went away and I could walk and they told the doctors enough, uh, UCSF, so the UCSF is now conducting a control study. A control study is therapeutic group, placebo group, good evaluation. So again, it's starting from the, the, the bottom level up. So what will happen is there'll be some big breakthrough. GW Pharmaceutical out of England has found that uh, the, what's Charlotte called Charlotte's Web, can treat uncontrolled seizures. And they got it rescheduled to a medical, uh, approved medical compound in the United Kingdom. They're bringing that research over to the United States. The government and NIDA is fighting it tooth and nail. Because once you reschedule it from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, it means that I, as a doctor, you could come in and you say, I have this, that, and the other thing, and I can write you a prescription, and you can go to the pharmacy and get it. That's medicine. Mm -hmm. This, the research is mounting, but you're fighting those same forces. One of the key people that we know that did a very good research study a long time ago, he got it rejected because the government that controlled the marijuana said, if we fund this study, people may use it to legalize marijuana. Well, that's all done. You know, marijuana, recreational use of marijuana is legal. Now, I mentioned that we live in this bubble out here. I go back east. Uh, to these conferences on the East Coast and the NIDA and government representatives still are saying marijuana is terrible, it should never be legalized, it will lead you to hell and damnation, it's the worst thing on the face of the earth. And it says, well, what good does that do me to come out here? What good does that public policy initiative do out here in California? In, in Haight-Ashbury, they had... Uh, uh, 420 day, <laughs> around my office, there must have been 2,000 people waiting in the Muni line smoking pot. <laughs> so what good does it do me as a physician in California to listen to this hell and damnation? It doesn't help me deal with anything. It doesn't make my educational medicines any more effective. It doesn't make my training any more effective. It doesn't make my treatment any more effective. In fact, when I treat these young people who, who have, have heard from their parents how terrible marijuana is, I say, I'm agnostic. I'm neither for or against it. There is no inherent moral characteristics to a chemical. I focus purely on what it does to you and what it does to your brain and your life. If it didn't do anything, you wouldn't be here. And, and some of the young people say, well, you know, the fact that you're not on one side of the fence or the other makes me more open to listening to what you say. If you begin talking to a young person about cannabis and you are anti-legalization or poor pro-legalization, if you're talking to parents, then you'll automatically compromise the message you want to send. And that's been your message all along. I mean, you yeah. started in 
<laughs> from the very earliest days, and not only, I mean, even dealing with something like VD or something like that, you know, it did healthcare without judgment. So, um, the current issue of the medical, our journal is on pain, and it has a piece on cannabis and pain. You can find it on the website for the journal by, just you're talking about Donald Abrams, who has spoken here and is chief of oncology at there in general. Dave and I and others have done, we're still trying, so we've done theme issues through the years, addiction medicine. Um, this is a particular favorite one because this is the only one I ever served as a cover model for. Sugar. I mean, so it's still the the what Dave still works on is mainstreaming this in a way that gets it out to the most people, uh, non-judgmental treatment and science-based treatment. I can tell you, he mentioned this conference a couple weeks ago. We had hundreds of people come to San Francisco to do an addiction summit for the city. It was all day long, it's exhausting. We're trading off as moderators. Um, we're driving back home, and he starts talking about planning next year's one, and I had to say, shut up, Dave, we just need finished to rest. this one. I'm tired, I need to rest. He just keeps going with it, and, and is a total inspiration. And as I said at the very beginning, his life and his work has helped. Literally, if you look at all the clinics that spread around the country and all the policy changes, millions of people. So David, thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. David Smith and Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.